Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And I want to thank our sponsors for this second hour for making this show economically viable. They are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resources Corporation, Miranda Gold, Precipitate Gold, and Renaissance Gold. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again Rick Rule. Rick needs no introduction unless perhaps you've lived under a rock for the last number of decades. And if you have, I doubt that what Rick has to say will be all that meaningful to you anyway. But if you are aware of Rick Rule, then you would be absolutely nuts to turn this show off right now because, number one, Rick is entertaining. And number two, he knows how to make money, especially in dismal markets like the ones we're finding ourselves in now, at least those of us in the resource sector have had uh, a pretty tough time of it. Uh, but uh, somehow the best investors find ways to make money when everybody else is wringing their hands and ready to give up. So uh, welcome, Rick. Really good to have you back with me today. A pleasure, Jay. It's always nice to be interviewed by you. It's always good to listen to you. I would rather almost not be interviewing you and listening to someone else interview you so I could really focus on what you have to say, as I did recently when you were on CNBC. And uh, I want to get to some of your comments you made uh, recently on CNBC about the uh, precious metals markets. But, you know, we just spoke now a, a few minutes ago with Gene Epstein, who writes the Economic Beat column for Barron's. And, um, he's recently written in Barron's that the U.S. is engaging in the costliest Ponzi scheme ever and that if we don't change our ways, our finances uh, could be headed in the same direction and in the same condition as that that Greece is experiencing or worse. Do you buy that argument? I do. Uh, you know, I wouldn't describe myself, and we've had this discussion before, I wouldn't describe myself as, a, as an economist, as a macroeconomist. Mm-hmm. What I am is a credit analyst. And... As a credit analyst, you know, you sort of take the magic out of things associated with, mm-hmm. as an example, having the world's reserve currency, and you just look at the credit's ability to repay you. 
Mm-hmm. And it, when we're talking about U.S. society, I don't like that credit's ability to repay me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, the global macro. I'm talking about... Your listeners will enjoy this. It's a little, I guess it's a poem. It goes like this. When your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep becomes your downfall. (laughs) If we could get Congress to repeat that as a mantra on a daily basis, we wouldn't have a problem in the U.S. It really is pretty simple. But absent that, I think we have serious problems, Jay. Well, it seems to me we have serious problems in part because most people don't think we have serious problems. And, in fact, uh, uh, President Obama assured us in the State of the Union message recently that we're more than half of the way to uh, to solving our debt problems. And supposedly, according to a CNN poll, three-fourths of Americans believe that to be the case. They actually believe the president is, uh, is, is, uh, is telling it straight uh, and that we are on our way to recovery and everything is going to be just honky-dory. But, you know, when I look at the U.S. debt-to-GDP figures, um, it looks to me like we're remaining historically you know, at historically high levels, even higher than we were by far, higher than we were at the worst of the, 19, uh, the Great Depression in 1932. Um, so, as a credit analyst, Rick, uh, do you look at? I know you look at individual companies before you put money into it. And you, you know, your solvency is the primary issue, and uh, you know, can we make money for the risk we're taking? I know you're very, very aware of that. But from a macro level at the U.S., so when you look at, you know, the total amount of debt that we have relative to GDP, uh, do you think we're more than half our way through this problem? I don't know about that, but. What you have to add with regards to the United States is the off-balance sheet liabilities. If you were looking at a corporate vehicle, you'd have to take into account what the uh, creative accountants at places like Enron used to call the special purpose vehicles. (laughs) And in this case, the special purpose vehicles are things like Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and federal pensions. Uh, And then you have to look at the... um, special purpose vehicles controlled by the special purpose vehicles. Uh, you know, it was probably the U.S. government that taught the people at Enron. But at any rate, mm. if you go below those special purpose vehicles, you see the same problems at the state level and even the local level. Our local mm-hmm. municipality thinks it had a balanced budget, but they forget that they have $70 million in unfunded pension liabilities, and, and that assumes that their pension account generates a 17, a 7%, pardon me, annualized return on investment. Mm-hmm. And their return on investment for the last five years has been sub-1. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it's difficult for people to get their heads around is that on any given balance sheet, um, many of your assets are ephemeral. But unfortunately, your liabilities are always money good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that really bothers me at the federal level. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess they are, but I mean, to what extent will the will the country make good on those obligations? I mean, it seems to me it's almost impossible for that to happen. Of course, Rick, the difference is that the United States, as a, as a sovereign nation, can print as much money as it likes, right? Well, I guess that's correct, uh, as long as people will take it. And, and certainly, you know, if you look at those so-called money-good obligations, uh, if I were a younger person thinking about their alleged money-good obligation with regards to my Social Security, um, I wouldn't regard it personally as a money-good obligation, but it's certainly a liability that will hang over those of us uh, who are the ultimate payors. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. So it's certainly it's certainly problematic. Well, as uh, as the government, uh, as the Federal Reserve prints and prints and prints, you know, there's uh, as Mark Skousen recently was on our show. He uh, he he pointed out that the markets really. If left to their own device, would default, would you know, would default and deflate, and we would, mm-hmm. we would get through this mess in a hurry. It would be a, it would be a heck of a painful experience, but we get through it. On the other hand, Mark points out that the Fed and the governments will just print relentlessly. So, if you believe, and I don't know, I, I think you do believe, but I'd like to ask you, do you think that markets ultimately went out? In other words, will the deflationary pressures that are naturally inherent in in our current condition, with this excessive amount of debt relative to income, will the markets ultimately win out, or will the politicians win out? And I guess another way, what I'm trying to ask you is, do you think we're headed for a deflationary implosion or an inflationary explosion? I think we are in for a war between the two for the next four or five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think ultimately, probably, the politicians actually win out. They, uh, as uh, our friend Doug Casey has put it out so often, uh, have a monopoly on sanctioned violence and murder, mm. uh, which keeps people like me from foreclosing against them. So <laughs> probably what happens, uh, I'm not as rash as I was when I was younger, Jake, probably what happens ultimately is that they uh, change the denominator they change the dollars so that the the net present value in real terms of their obligations decline. Mm-hmm. Or probably, frankly, over time, uh, both things happen. I, I can't imagine that they actually intend to keep their promises with regards to Social Security mm-hmm. and health care. Uh, or if they do intend to keep them, I can't believe that they'll be able to afford them. Uh, but with regard to the on-balance sheet liabilities, I'm almost certain that they intend to inflate them away. Mm-hmm. I could see them do tricks like, as an example, that portion of the federal debt that they found a way to monetize, in other words, buying their own paper. Mm-hmm. They could probably cancel both sides of the trade, yeah. ultimately, mm-hmm. and just consign that spending to money heaven. Just say, yep, mm-hmm. you know, nod, nod, wink, wink. Um, mm-hmm. We just cut 25% of your savings. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I could see that happening. But in answer to your question, I, I suspect, although I don't know, that ultimately the um, the break, if you will, the workout, is inflationary. It sounds to me uh, that what you think is going to happen is the middle class will get squeezed. The people that don't have uh, those uh, those obligations, uh, that that the government doesn't have those direct on balance sheet obligations to. In other words, the future Social Security, uh, health care payments, and that sort of thing. The the middle class will get will get squeezed. And I'd like to ask you if you don't think that's happening now, because uh, it seems to me that the government's inflation numbers that they're putting out now, one point seven percent are just a bit suspect. In fact, uh, John Williams talks about uh, if you measured inflation the same way we did in 1980 before President Reagan came in, that we're really looking at something closer to the CPI of something closer to 10% than the 1.7% that the government claims it is. Do you have an an opinion on that? Uh, Again, with the caveat that I'm not an economist, I'm a credit Mm -hmm. analyst. I mean, I don't know where these guys shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whoever puts together the CPI doesn't shop where I shop, particularly when it's inconvenient for them and they report the CPI uh, X food and energy. Right. I mean, it would be okay if I didn't eat or drive. Right. I do. The second thing with that in- in- index that's absolutely idiotic 
is it's supposed to be a cost of living index, right? Yeah. Well, what about tax? Yeah, that's if true. If I didn't have to pay the tax, I wouldn't bitch about the index. <laughs> uh, but the truth is, I do. Mm-hmm. So I do. I think the CPI is a floating abstraction. And with regards to your prior comment, I'd, li- I- I'd really like to take that up, because when you talk about the middle class being squeezed, it isn't just the middle class. Mm-hmm. The underclass, if you will, those people who have been trained to believe that the big daddy will look after them in some fashion mm-hmm. over some period of time, have to understand that big daddy's coming up empty. Mm. The middle class is going to get squeezed for that reason, and they're going to get squeezed because the world is globalizing, and they have to be taught that, I say they, we, I came from there, we have to be taught that wealth is a function of utility. Wealth is producing more than you consume. Mm -hmm. And the American middle class, the American citizenry, has been taught to believe that they're somehow entitled to some standard of living that is greater than the utility that they produce. And the uh, so-called upper class, the 1%, the producers, well, I don't know what happened to your tax bill this year, Jim, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. between what the president did to me and what my, gov- my governor did to me uh, out here in the People's Republic of California, mm-hmm. the squeeze is up close and personal. Yeah. Um, we're actually printing up some shirts here at Sprott that say proudly presenting financial, uh, uh, proudly uh, providing financial services to the 1% and those who aspire. And I told Doug Casey that, and he said the logo might be a target, a bullseye on the back of that shirt. Well, it, 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 you might not want to wear it out there at uh, uh, the boys that were camping outside of Wall Street there for a few a, a while back, I suppose. But So the middle class is, yeah, everybody's getting squeezed. I, I hear you. That is absolutely true. There's a, and, and, in fact, I would say the venom is pointed towards that 1% now, and that's, uh, and that's unfortunate because the problem is, Rick, is that uh, we've had Keynesian economics which has taught people exactly the opposite of what you just said. Wealth is produced, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's created by, by producing more than you consume. Well, of course, Keynes uh, had the opposite idea, or, the, or at least Keynes, as he's being espoused, uh, had the idea that, that we can consume our way to prosperity or print our way to prosperity. But in any event, we've got an inflation rate that I believe, and I think you believe, is higher than the 1.7%. But even if you take the 1.7% and you put your money in treasuries, and then you pay taxes on the interest on those treasuries, you're really getting hosed, are you not? Absolutely. Jim Grant famously called it return-free risk, yeah. which doesn't sound like an attractive proposition to me. Uh, you know, the idea that bonds can do well from this interest rate seems very odd to me. I mean, if you look at the yield on a 30-year treasury, if it goes any lower, you're going to have to send them a check for holding your money. Um, completely unattractive. Yeah, I just don't understand. But but and yet, we've had a Gary Schilling on this show who has been uh, you know long and bullish on the on the treasuries, and so far he's been right. Is that because uh, Mr. Bernanke is buying them? And then at what point uh, will that no longer work? I mean, in, in theory, at least Bernanke could buy up everything, right, and and keep interest rates uh, low. But then he'd own well, all. I think, uh, I think that's an interesting supposition. You know, Ambrose Bierce famously said that uh, the root word of confidence is con. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bernanke certainly has succeeded in convincing people that the correct answer for insolvency, which is the problem he's facing, is liquidity. I think they're very different problems, but of course that's because I come from a lender's perspective mm-hmm. and it comes from a political perspective. Mm-hmm. I-, I think the other 
discussion that needs to be had in terms of your statement is that uh, people, most people, search for information that supports their paradigm and their feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people would rather feel good than bad. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that people's expectations of the future are set by their experiences in the immediate past. Mm -hmm. And so if you take those two trains of thought, what you think about is that the last three months, the economic news, at least the reported economic news, has been pretty good. Mm -hmm. And it allows people to feel good about what Mr. Obama and what Mr. Bernanke are doing. It also allows them not to think too much about 2008 and the fact that the set of circumstances that precipitated that economic collapse, at least from my point of view, haven't been dealt with. Mm -hmm. It's more pleasant to focus on the immediate past, and it's what people want to focus on anyway. Okay, so I think we would probably agree that we're better off focusing on not necessarily always what we what feels good, but what is what is really coming down the pike if we can if we can see that and if we can you know put those most recent experiences out of our mind and try to look at things objectively. So what do you see going here? We, I mean, with low interest rates, the argument is you've got to go out, you got to take on more and more risk, you got to go out and buy risky stocks. You can't, you know, there's no way for retired people, for example, to buy. Uh, you know, the treasuries that are giving them eight, eight or ten percent, or seven or six or seven percent, even. So, uh, isn't this an argument for a stock market that's likely to head higher, at least in nominal terms, if not real terms, for the foreseeable future? I wouldn't want to pe- give people um, any recommendations concerning the general equities market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't regard myself to be competent to do that. I certainly think in the markets that I operate in, this is self-serving, but I also believe it to be true, Uh, I think resource markets, certain commodity markets and resource equity markets are certainly headed higher. I think that we are in the middle rounds of a secular bull market in resources, and I think conveniently we are in a cyclical decline in a secular bull market, which is a different way of saying that goods that will become more valuable are on sale at present. So I I certainly, in the set of economic circumstances that you described, feel that one correct response for investors would be to own the physical precious metals, the certificated precious metals, and well-chosen precious metals equities. I also believe that other sectors in the resource business, like energy, will do well in the 10-year time frame and are marked down currently, and are certainly attractive relative to things like uh, federal debt. Well, what about? Uh, I, wa- I want to ask you. I have a couple of questions about energy and where you think we might best, uh, you know, how we might best play that. Uh, you were one of the first people to come along on my show and really get very excited about the energy uh, boom that we're hearing more and more about now. But what about agricultural commodities? Do you pay any attention to them? A lot. Um, I've been involved directly and indirectly in the farming and agricultural business for many years. Um, uh, there are very few ec- uh, equity ways to play agriculture directly, mm-hmm. although certainly the agricultural minerals business and the ag service business, things like the irrigation business, you mm-hmm. can play from an equity point of view. Uh, this is not a theme that's as ignored as it was five years ago, so it's not a theme that is as cheap as it was five years ago. But it is certainly a theme that will serve investors well, provided that those uh, investors first use uh, good securities analysis and 
look at the companies to make sure that, as an example, they aren't being run as small governments with liabilities exceeding uh, assets, mm-hmm. that the valuations are correctly, and also that those same speculators take a long-term point of view. Agricultural prices are extremely volatile, mm-hmm. and cyclical declines in secular bull markets can be on the order of 25 or 30 percent, mm-hmm. which means that you have to be willing to see your ag equity lose 40 percent in price before going up two or three hundred percent across a, time, a five-year time frame. Mm-hmm. That takes a certain intestinal fortitude that many less experienced retail investors don't have. So right. the investor would need to do a personality audit before they invested themselves too thoroughly in the sector. It's a wonderful sector for me. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, again, you're taking a longer-term view of things, Rick, and you have an ability to see things, you know, a cyclical bull, a bear market within a secular bull. And as you pointed out, we, we tend to be focused most uh, most thoroughly on our most recent experiences, so the ability to step back. And before we, I ask you about energy, I want to ask you then, going back to this whole theme of being at a cyclical bear within a secular bull, we're halfway through, you think. Do you think we've got another five, ten years? How long do you think in this bull market in commodities? I would suspect ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are very, very, very long cycles. And from my point of view, the commodities bear market started in 1992 and went through 2001, 2002. Maybe it bottomed in 2000. But the fact is that the down cycle that preceded this up, up cycle was 18 to 20 years long. Uh, Jimmy Rogers says that's standard, that you look for up and down cycles in commodities of between 15 and 20 years. And he's more a student of markets than I am. What I see is a, is a series of industries that are interrelated but not completely correlated, but ones that are uh, capital intensive, meaning that uh, increases in price don't yield immediate increases in supply because of the long lead times associated with increasing supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, phases, uh, both the up markets and the down markets, are very, very, very long, and they're punctuated by um, incredible volatility. One example, Jay, which you remember, but mm-hmm. your younger listeners won't, and they should be reminded of, is that in the 1970s gold bull market, when the gold price ran from $35 an ounce to $850 an ounce, truly a memorable market. Yes, it was. Um, In the middle of that, in 1975, gold had run from about $35 an ounce to about $200 an ounce. Pretty nice move for five Mm -hmm. years. And then the bottom fell out. The gold price fell from $200 an ounce to about $100 an ounce. Mm -hmm. A 50% (laughs) decline in a secular market. Yep. A couple of lessons there. These things happen. And people who were right, if they didn't have the psychological or the financial strength to stay the trade, got shaken out of a market that turned around and ran again from $100 an ounce to $850 an ounce. Mm -hmm. An eight-fold move in six years. So you need the financial strength and you need the psychological strength to stay the trade in these cyclical declines so that you can make the most of the secular bull market. 
Well, that certainly puts the current gold move in some perspective there, Rick, and shows that what we've experienced recently, a lot of people are wringing their hands over the decline in the gold price, uh, you know, to a little over $1,550 or so uh, from its heights. And and so not that much of a move percentage-wise compared to that. I want to ask you more about gold and precious metals in general. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about energy because I know you are an expert in energy as an area that you focused on probably as much as any other company commodity over the years and um, you know as I mentioned a little a few minutes ago you were one of the first people to come on this show uh, a year ago or so and get really excited about about what was taking place at the fracking and the, the energy boom in the United States but you know Rick what's happened of course is natural gas prices have gone through the floor and uh, and I don't know that the producers in general are making that much money these days is there is it possible that maybe the best place to make money in this sector is in pipelines or refiners? Or there's some, what are your thoughts there? Where is the best? How's the best way to play the energy boom in the U.S. right now? Uh, my style is to hit them where they ain't. Uh, everybody hates natural gas, and it is underpriced versus almost any fossil fuel in terms of utility. So we now are buying the truly unloved natural gas equities, the sub five hundred million dollar natural gas equities that make enough money stripping liquids out of natural gas to stay alive, but mm-hmm. have optionality to high natural gas prices later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the pipeline business. I think it's a wonderful business because it's very simple. You put goop in one end, you take it out of the other end. I mean, I could almost do that. And you, you get paid a transit fee. The problem with the pipelines as we speak, Jay, is that everybody is hunting for yield. Mm-hmm. And the yield associated with the pipelines has been driven down uh, by their simple virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we get a rise in interest rates, the mm-hmm. problem with the pipelines is that their cost of capital associated with the money they borrow goes up mm-hmm. while the capitalized value of their distribution goes down. Mm-hmm. So although I still own pipelines for myself and many clients, ones that I bought in 2008, I have a fairly tight trailing stop associated with them because I'm afraid if the interest rate goes up, Mm-hmm. that I'll get clobbered in what ought to be a safe investment. I would also um, draw your listeners' attention to the uranium business, which I think is the most attractive of the energy businesses as we oh. speak. Oh, thank you. Uranium, uranium prices got clobbered by Fukushima. But Fukushima, I think, practically is a one-off event. And although there's widespread public um, distrust of the uranium industry, there is also a widespread public fondness for electricity. The idea that you do away with uh, nuclear energy assumes that you accept the fact that if you walk into a room and hit the switch, that the lights don't come on. <laughs> the alternatives that are promised us, things like wind and solar, are wonderful, except in isolation. If you think about it, solar has a big problem, night. Mm-hmm. Uh, wind, you don't get... Uh, wind turbulence on a consistent basis, 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 except perhaps in the legislature, uh, <laughs> but certainly it isn't a viable way to generate baseload power. Well, I'm, uh, I think that uh, the, the fact that the uranium price has fallen as a consequence of a one-off event from $85 to $40, my suspicion is in the next uh, three or four years that it retraces that step. In other words, that you have a three or four-year doubling 
of the uranium price, which I think is extremely attractive. Well, this certainly uh, certainly is attractive. Uh, there are a couple of sponsors of this show that we've had, Uranium Energy and uh, Blue Sky Uranium, a couple of companies uh, that look fairly attractive to me for, for different reasons. And uh, I know that uh, I don't believe that you're necessarily able or uh, to, com- to comment on individual companies, but I do appreciate your perspective on that, Rick. And again, folks, this is why Rick Rule has been so successful, is he's looking at things that are out of fashion, things that don't necessarily feel good by the masses to buy, but things that he's able to look at. And of course, uh, d- uh, you know, with, with some discretion, of course, and you just don't just go out and buy things because they're cheap, but you also have to do your homework. And as Rick says, uh, do your do your credit analysis and, and do your uh, securities analysis before you, before you buy things. But uh, okay, so gold, Rick, um, you know, you were just saying from from a hundred, from two hundred dollars to a hundred back in the mid seventies, and then from a hundred to eight fifty, we've had a you know a pretty significant fallback. I guess it's not percentage wise so much, but gold has gone nowhere in the last year and a half or so. Uh, and you know, as, as you were saying, I think that they asked you on CNBC recently about the technical analysis that a lot of technicians are getting very bearish on on gold right now, but you, looking at it from a fundamental point of view, like it a lot. Why do you like gold and and the other precious metals? Uh, I I do, Jay, for the reasons that we talked about at the beginning of your show, in a fundamental sense. But, you know, I was just at the Cambridge uh, conference in Palm Springs Mm -hmm. over the weekend, and a lot of people said to me, Rick, when is gold going to move? And my first response was, well, in the year 2000. (laughs) <laughs> it's going to move. It moves from $250 an ounce to $1,600 an yeah. ounce. From where I come from, a six-fold move is pretty good. Yeah. The second response I have is that in the last 12 years, gold has had these 10 or 12% retrenchments, I don't know, six times or eight times. And after each one, the retracement of the of the retrenchment, was pretty violent and took mm-hmm. out the prior highs. Mm-hmm. Finally, I would say to your listeners, if you were in a, a shopping mall, if you were walking through a shopping mall, imagine yourself shopping for real assets as opposed to financial assets, and you saw a store on the left side of the mall that said, all goods, 15% off, annual sale. And a store on the right-hand side of the mall said, all goods, fully priced, all the time. Big margins for me, no bargains for you. Yeah. What store would you go into? Yeah. A bear market is a sale. Mm-hmm. If you believe in the thesis of gold in the long term, why on earth would you object to getting it at 15% off? It's incomprehensible to me. But when people buy financial goods as opposed to buying physical goods, they check their IQ at the door. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good point, Rick. And, and here's the thing I'd also like to tell our listeners. I don't know how many times I've been at gold shows or, or various financial uh, forums and shows, and I've heard uh, Rick Rule say, folks, this is getting a little frothy. I'd take some money off the table. And, you know, I'm saying, no, 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 not yet. No, this is too much fun. Uh, don't take the punch bowl away from me, Rick. And But, Rick, uh, that is the necessary part, too, the ability to know when things are overvalued and when to sell. And so that you have some powder to go out and buy those bargains. And this is uh, this is not easy to for people to to figure out, is it? I mean, it's 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 very difficult to know. I mean, frothy is frothy, but sometimes can get a lot more frothy for a lot longer. So, for example, the bond market right now. It may be the only joy of being sixty, Jay. <laughs> I've been through these cycles enough that I know that when um, you know everybody around me is terrified, it's time to stump up some courage. 
Yeah. And when everybody around me is confusing with a bull market with brains, uh, <laughs> it's time to start hitting bids. Uh, life really, truly is that simple. Warren Buffett says, you know, he made his fortune by being brave when others were afraid and afraid when others were brave. Yeah. So, you know, we're being brave. And, you know, if you look at things over 50 years, he did pretty well. Well, in looking at things from a longer-term perspective, again, I think one of the things you, you said that really rings true with me is this notion of our most recent experiences are what's most real to us, when in fact it's not necessarily the most, you know, the way we should be looking at the world. Well, um, Rick, you talked about platinum and palladium, and we only have a few minutes left here yet, but you talked about platinum and palladium and CNBC, and you told the, the anchor there that if he held your feet to the fire uh, in terms of, you know, which of the precious metals do you like most, platinum and palladium you said you'd have to say that why explain to our listeners why you're especially fond of those metals jay it's a unique story right now uh first of all people need to understand that platinum and palladium are bullion too and they've enjoyed the same properties the same characteristics that the other forms of bullion have for many years and as you know i'm attracted to precious metals but they're unique first in terms of supply gold and silver uh are held in substantial measure in bullion we do something fairly silly, actually. We take gold and silver out of holes in the ground called mines, and we put them in holes in the ground called vaults. <laughs> that doesn't happen with platinum and palladium. It goes out a tailpipe, it goes up a smokestack, or it gets turned into jewelry. The total above-ground supplies of platinum and palladium are substantially less than one year's fabrication demand. The only supply that we have to concern ourselves with is new mine supply, and mm -hmm. new mine supply is falling. Mm -hmm. It's falling for a couple of reasons. Unlike gold and silver, which are produced ubiquitously around the world and in combination with many other metals, platinum is produced, platinum and palladium are produced at least as to 90% of supply in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Russia. There are extreme physical constraints to producing platinum and palladium. And at this price point, the platinum and palladium industry on a global basis does not earn its cost of capital. Either the price of platinum and palladium goes up or the supply falls further with no existing inventory to draw down. Further, with regards to supply, the industry faces ugly cost headwinds. Let's look at South Africa first. South Africa produces 70% of the world's platinum and 39% of the world's palladium. And in South Africa, because of the geology and because of politics, they don't mechanize the mines. They're very, very, very labor-intensive, and mostly they can't mechanize the mines because of the geology. Working conditions and workers' wages in South Africa are deplorable. Deplorable. Don't confuse me with a bleeding heart, but I'm a guy mm -hmm. who has gone underground mm -hmm. and know that these people need to be paid better. Mm -hmm. But the tragedy is, Jay, they can't be. Mm -hmm. The mining industry is between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. They have to pay these guys more, but they can't mm -hmm. because their cost of capital. Mm -hmm. They aren't earning their cost of capital. Second, throughout S South Africa, there is a widespread belief and agreement that the social take from mining has to go up. Taxes, royalties, mm. carried working interest. Wow. But it can't because the industry is returning its cost of capital. Yeah. Finally, the South African industry, by its own estimate, needs to invest between 6 and $8 billion to continue to produce at its current level, to access new areas of the reef, and to overcome uh, sustaining capital investments that were deferred over the last six years. 
As a consequence of those sustaining capital investments, South African production has declined by 19%. So you have these overdue investments. They need 6 to $8 billion, but they can't earn it, and they can't talk us into giving it to them because they don't earn their cost of capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you go north of the border into Zimbabwe, every set of circumstances present in South Africa is present in Zimbabwe mm. in spades. Mm. And finally, if you go up to Russia, what you discover is that it's far and away the best country of the three, but palladium grades in Russia at Norilsk, which is where they mine it, are declining at depth. So they have geological reasons. Mm-hmm. The simple point is, Jay, that at this price point, the supply of platinum and palladium are, is in inexorable decline, so the price must go up. And better yet, the price can go up. Mm-hmm. Because the utility afforded to us by platinum and palladium at this price point is extraordinarily high. The air quality that we enjoy today compared to 40 years ago is a simple consequence of platinum and palladium loadings in, in catalytic converters. And it costs $200 per vehicle to afford us the air quality that we enjoy today. So, so the price has to go up, and it can go up. It's going to have to go up. and uh, So it sounds to me, though, Rick, that the best way to play this is to buy the physical metal. However, uh, I'm familiar with a very famous entrepreneur named Robert Friedland who has a project in South Africa. Uh, and speaking of South Africa, that horrible place to mine, but from what I understand about this project is it might have the possibility of mechanized mining methods that would be much more humane. I don't know if you can comment on that, if you know anything about that project, but certainly Robert Friedland is, uh, is no dummy. He's been a very successful entrepreneur. He's gone to places in the past that most mere mortals can't go to and make a go of it, and he's done it. So any comments on that one? I am not allowed to recommend stock purchase. Okay. I am allowed to report conflicts of interest. Uh, <laughs> I own, on behalf of partnerships that I manage and am a shareholder of, about 3 million shares of Ivan Platts. Okay. Now, understand that this is not a recommendation. This is disclosure of a conflict oh, of interest. Lord forbid you would recommend Robert something. Friedland, Robert Friedland is simply the best mining entrepreneur that has existed since Cecil Rhodes. And if you had given Robert an army, he would have eclipsed Mr. Rhodes. Yes. Um, Robert has been responsible for, let me think, uh, Fort Knox, (laughs) uh, Boise's Bay, Oyu Polgoy, now Flat Reef and Kamoa. Five world-class discoveries in one career. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And further, I have participated in market bottoms in Friedland companies on several occasions. The market tops, he's always too persuasive and his valuations are too high. Uh Going along with Robert at market bottoms has been the closest thing that I have ever participated in in terms of owning a row of slot machines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, does this mean that Ivan Platts is absolutely positively without a doubt going to work? No. But I suspect, at least maybe not for your listeners, but for me, it's a bet worth making. Well, thank you very much, Rick. Unfortunately, we're way, way, way out of time already, but you, I do want to ask you about uh, how people can avail themselves to your wisdom. Is there a website? Can they can follow your your um, your times? on? I know you're on television occasionally. Uh, and is there maybe a fund that they can invest in if they so desire at Sprott? Or, or how can people, how can people two, two use you to make ways, money? Yeah. Two different ways for people to avail themselves of the 110 resource professionals at Sprott. One is to go to our website 
at www.sprottglobal.com. That's S-P-R-O-T-T-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Or call us, if you're in the United States or Canada, at 800-477-7853. Thank you very much, Rick, for being with us again. Uh, Always always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for your wisdom and sharing that with our listeners. Folks, don't go away because right after the commercial break, John Burgess uh, is uh, the president of a company uh, that is selling at about 3% of what the uh, preliminary economic assessment of their project says they should be selling at. So we're going to try to find out from John why he thinks there's such a disconnect between the market and the PEA. Don't go away. We'll be right back. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers. With valuations exceeding $280 million, with a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well-positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm really pleased to have with me today uh, for a second time John Burgess. He's the president and CEO of Northern Freegold. And John has worked in the past with firms like uh, Merrill Lynch and Deutsche Bank. He's been a trader. He's been involved. Uh, he's been involved as a trader and in the natural resource sector for quite some time. Welcome, John. Good to have you back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be uh, back on your show. Really like to tell our uh, listeners, for the benefit of those that may not have heard your story before, that um, Northern Freegold trades in Toronto under the symbol NFR. 
and you can buy it in the United States as I have under the symbol NFRGF. 126 million shares outstanding, um, and the recent share price uh, has really fallen down to back to where it was before the preliminary economic assessment, uh, but it's selling at around $0.08 cents a share, giving the company market cap of only around $10 million. Uh, John, we talked in the past uh, about your project in the Yukon, but for the sake of those that might not know uh, much about it, uh, for Canadians and Americans, um, how do they get there to this spot in the Yukon? Well, the Yukon's uh, northwest Canada. It's uh, you know sandwiched between um, British Columbia and Alaska. Uh, it's got international flights in. Uh, it's a white horse, which is the capital. Um, we're located 200 kilometers uh, on a um, government uh, highway, um, so a fast highway north of the capital. So that's where all the uh, industry is, the rigs, the equipment, so and people. So um, we're about two hours north uh, along the highway, and another two hours along a, a government-maintained road. So we've got road access into a property, which is a key uh, advantage for our, for our uh, project. Um, you know, the Yukon's in the north, but, you know, it's you, you go up there, Whitehorse is a big, bustling industrial town, 20, 25,000 people. You know, it's akin to a, an oil and gas uh, town in, uh, you know, in, uh, in South Dakota or North Dakota right now. There's a lot of mining activity up there, so oh. uh, maybe north, but it's a, you know, it's a real city. Well, when we last talked to you, you know, we learned that not only do you have a very significant, a couple of very significant deposits up there, uh, but one of the advantages that you have over a lot of the other companies uh, operating up there in the Yukon is a relatively attractive infrastructure situation. You know, access to your property uh, is easy and uh, and power is not that far away and so forth. But uh, for the benefit, you know, we'd really like to, um, well, for people that are hearing your story for the first time, can you just let our listeners know how many ounces of gold, silver, copper, molybdenum do you have uh, when the two dif- two different deposits up there, right? Yeah, we've got a, a property uh, which, as you say, is road accessible power, 30 kilometers away from an existing operating uh, copper mine. So there's you know good, good infrastructure around it. The the actual property is uh, roughly three times the size of Manhattan. It's uh, just under 200 square kilometers. So it's a big property. We own 100% of it. Uh, there's two deposits, revenue and nucleus. The total ounces um, come in at. Uh, uh, just under uh, 1.3 million indicated gold ounces and, and uh, another kind of 1.8 million uh, inferred. So all in, you've got about 3 million gold ounces across all categories. And these are 43101 compliant resources. Mm-hmm. In addition to the gold, you know, we've actually got a lot of copper and moly, um, a little bit of silver, which doubles the size of the resource in total. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a really good-sized project there. And, you know, the key... Um, piece of news we put out is this PEA, which uh, you referred to, Jay. Yeah, definitely. I want to want want to get started on that because I think that's what really makes this a compelling story. If you look at the preliminary economic assessment numbers relative to your share price, it is a very, I think, a very compelling, very important. Uh, piece of information people need to focus on, and um, for whatever reasons, I want to get your impression on that later, why the market is not valuing you anywhere near the preliminary assessment uh, numbers. Uh, but first of all, uh, how much gold, silver, copper, and is uh, projected to be produced by the PEA? I mean, what are, what are well, the numbers showing? Yeah, so the, the, the initial PEA we put out um, is basically going to... We forecasted a 11-year mine life, 
and uh, over the 11 years you're producing around 150,000 ounces of gold a year, uh, 17 million pounds of copper and 4.2 million uh, pounds of molybdenum, as well as 335,000 ounces of silver. Hmm. More, more importantly, if you focus on the first five years uh, of production, which is obviously from a cash flow perspective, uh, what, what focus, focuses the mind is what's your early cash flow, we're actually averaging over 203,000 uh, ounces of gold per year for that first five-year period. So, mm. you know, you're producing over a million ounces in the first five years. That, that's a significant gold mine in itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, current prices, then, if you're really producing that much more in the early years, what sort of payback period? How soon do you get your capital back? Well, we were using uh, for our, uh, net, uh, our base case for our preliminary economic assessment um, uh, prices obviously a little lower than, than current spot prices. Mm -hmm. We're using uh, uh, three-year trailing average prices for gold of uh, $1,455 an ounce. Mm -hmm. And the payback period is uh, just over four years. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, again, very economic. The, the net present value on this is over $600 million. It's actually $615 million, uh, giving you a 23.4% IRR, and that's all pre-tax. Mm -hmm. And uh, okay, that's pre-tax. And what discount are you using there, John? We were discounting at five percent because this is a gold project, so that's pretty standard. Um, you know, if you look at it, um, at a ten percent discount, ten percent discount rate, you still got a, a net present value of over three hundred thirty-one million dollars. Um, and uh, after tax, you know, uh, one hundred sixty-one million dollars. So again, pretty robust, depending on whatever discount rate you use. Okay, so let's look at that relative to your market cap, and this is, the, I think, the one statistic that our listeners should really focus on. Your market cap is around $10 million right now. Yeah. And that compares. That, yeah. So if you give it a real strong conservative haircut, use a 10% net uh, a discounted value on your NPV, uh, and then even after taxes, you got $161 million compared to $10 million market uh, current market cap. So... It, you know, where where is the disconnect? Why why is the market why is the market not giving you more respect? <laughs> That's a very good question, Jay. I think, um, I mean, generally, the, the you know, when I've done some of this analysis for um, other small uh, gold juniors right now, obviously stocks stock prices have, have come down significantly, and there's just been this massive de-risking in the market. People are have uh, moved a lot of their uh, funds out of uh, early stage companies uh, like us and uh, put them into you know cash flow producing assets. Um, I, you know that being said, I think with the PEA out now we have you know a very kind of recognizable um, engineering study out there that uh, you know attests to the potential value of the project. Um, and uh, I think. You know, gold has obviously come down a little bit from its highs, but you know, for us, using a gold price of 1455 versus spot prices in the uh, 1600 range uh, shows there's still significant value even uh, um, at lower prices. Uh, our cash cost of production, Jay, is something else I want to just mention. Cash right. cost of gold, you know, net of byproducts is $399. That's incredible. That has okay. to put you, uh, I would think, John, that would put you in the lower lower quartile of uh, of cost producers, maybe even lower than that. 
I, you know, it's, it's got to be there or thereabouts. I think it's a terrific number. And we also wanted to make the point, you know, we think this is the initial uh, assessment based on the existing resources we've got. We believe that uh, there's a strong uh, potential for that to grow. Uh, we think uh, with further drilling, we can increase the size of the resources we have and um, potentially find some high-grade zones. So there's a good chance that uh, as that gets factored in, we'll be able to enhance the economics you know, beyond what we have already, which is a pretty strong, uh, robust uh, uh, economics. John, what, um, just to get an idea, what, how many tons of rock are you going to produce or going to have to process a day in order to reach those numbers, those very impressive production numbers, and what will be the capital cost uh, to get started? I don't think you mentioned that. Okay, so um, you know, one of the things you look at is your strip ratio, uh, your your um, uh, kind of rock uh, or to uh, waste ratio, which is two to one, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, the, the assumption we're using is a thirty thousand ton a day. Um, uh, mill and uh, the capital investment for that project is uh, 500 million, just under 500, 499 million, uh, uh, which would be uh, initial uh, production uh, investment. Um, you know, and that's uh, fairly typical for a project of that size. You know, in a, a northern uh, uh, province or territory like the Yukon. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that begs the question. Then, probably one of the one of the reasons the market isn't pricing you uh, hire uh, is how does a company you know at your st- at your status and your place in, in the mm-hmm. development how do you raise the capital 500 million dollars is a lot of money for a company that has a 10 million dollar market cap so how do you answer that question well you know a company of our market cap clearly isn't going to be raising all of that capital um, so two things got to change either our market cap would increase to a point where we can we can fund it so that would uh, you know that Increase could come through uh, people uh, reflecting on the value we have, the inherent value, uh, us uh, doing a good job in articulating that, uh, you know, discovering more ounces, uh, growing the asset. All of that could lead to a growth in uh, value. Gold price obviously going up will help too. Alternatively, um, you know, we'll uh, obviously entertain uh, discussions with uh, other groups. So this could be other major producers. Uh, there's other ways to uh, fund projects, um, you know, royalty structures, streaming structures. And, you know, it's not like we have to raise that money anytime soon. We've got a project here that's going to grow in size further. And, uh, you know, we, typically, you know, this will be several years away before we need to be uh, looking to raise uh, any, any capital to actually fund a, a mine build program. Yeah, I realize it's a very impressive uh, deposit, or, or just two deposits, a project that you've got. As you just said, uh, gold equivalent ounces, nearly six, around 6 million ounces, which is very impressive. It seems to me should attract the uh, interest of, of some major mining company somewhere along the line, I would think. Um, but, you know, between here and now, I guess, is what, what we're interested in. Certainly, you know, your northern... Uh, your company is a recommendation in my newsletter. I own it personally, so I, I care a great deal about what happens here uh, with your company. But um, just, uh, I, you know, how much money do you have in the till now, John, and, and how far will that take you? So, yeah, we had net working capital um, just in uh, early January of around a million dollars, mm-hmm. over a million dollars. Um, so, you know, we're good for the moment. We'll probably... Um, you know, have to look at the kind of program we want to do this uh, this year. 
uh, and I think what we're going to focus on is uh, uh, more of a discovery program. You know, we've got the answers already at Revenue and Nucleus. We we know what we have, but we also know that they can be expanded. Uh, but also that would require, you know, a reasonable amount of investment. Um, mm-hmm. And given the fact we're trading at about three to four dollars a gold ounce, it probably makes more sense for us to look at uh, rather adding ounces in the ground this summer. Look to, to see if we can find more discoveries. And we've uh, identified a whole series of uh, very interesting targets um, just to the uh, east of revenue areas like Ridge Stoddard Discovery, where we've got some uh, just fantastic. Uh, uh, geocam or soil geocam um, IP anomalies. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them have been drilled. Some mm-hmm. of them uh, haven't. We've got, for example, historic trench results of uh, 365 grams over five meters at the mm. Marguerite Scan. You know, wow. These are really interesting uh, targets, and we're going to focus on those areas and uh, look at uh, look at doing that in a fairly uh, inexpensive way. And these are uh, shallow targets, I suppose, John, near surface or on surface, or what? Yeah, some of, some of them are actually, uh, you know, at surface or, or very mm-hmm. near surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that could uh, certainly uh, um, generate some excitement. I, I know there's one company on my list uh, that did very well. Uh, the share price went from a few cents to two dollars on a discovery in the Dominican Republic. And certainly, if you could come up with uh, with some exciting numbers, that might also help people get excited about your share price. There's no question that this is one of the most difficult times that I've seen in this sector for a long, long time. John, I've been around this industry for decades, and uh, you know they, they they don't go on forever. And eventually, it's it's at times like these when share prices and when the values are so ridiculous ridiculously low that uh, the smart investors uh, such as uh, Rick Rule who we just heard from a few minutes ago these these kind of guys come in and buy these stocks at low prices and uh, if there's value there and you've got the management team in place and uh, you know you can make it happen and I, I think you will John is there anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion today I think, I think you know, projects like this, you've got to look at all of the ingredients, and one of the things we, we haven't touched on is just the risk. So this is in Canada. This mm-hmm. is a low-risk project. It's in a, the Yukon, which has you know, been home to uh, gold mining since the Klondike discovery uh, you know, over 100 years ago. Um, and I think you, know, you are going to see producers start to focus more on uh, homegrown projects in uh, North America. Uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, resource nationalism happening in uh, other parts of the world, um, Africa, South America, and I think uh, you know the Yukon's a terrific place to mine. If you look at the Fraser Institute, which is an independent uh, uh, research institute, they've ranked the Yukon in the top 10 mining jurisdictions in the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good place to be. Uh, and we're, you know, in the center of a, a gold copper belt with good infrastructure, with uh, ounces in the ground that we've discovered and a lot of potential as proved by that MPV that we have. Very good, John. Well, that's uh, all the time we have for now. Thank you very much for being with us, and we'll certainly be uh, tracking your company and its progress going forward. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Next week, David Tice will be here to talk about his new movie, Bubble Vision. And Pamela Aiden will stop by to give us her views on the precious metals markets as well as other important markets. And the CEOs of two of my favorite companies will be with me. Chris Krupe of Paramount Gold and Silver will be here to talk about that company's blockbuster preliminary economic assessment on its Mexican property. And also with me will be the CEO of Renaissance Gold. 
That's a uh, project generator company that is also one of my favorites. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.